0: and welcome to the History of England, episode 264C, Rebel Queen 4, War. Yesterday we concentrated on Mary, her brave decision at Kenning Hall to rebel against England's Queen and the impact of her letter on Jane at her council in London on the 10th of July. On the morning of the 11th of July, the first sound to be heard around the precincts of the Tower was the sound of hand slapping forehead. It was the sound of Northumberland's hand. Army first, then Queen. Army first, then Queen. Do, Closely followed by a call to his minstrels to play, if I could turn back time. It is true that Northumberland and Suffolk had men wearing their livery all over London, which had so impressed Shiver and Renard, and maybe as many as 800 men in all. But under the fur coat of their liveries, there were no knickers, not even a pair of scants. Northumberland and the council had not made preparations to put a proper army together. It's remarkably poor planning, and it can only be that Northumberland foolishly assumed that Mary would accept the legal will of the sovereign and council, or that she'd do the same thing Gloria Gaynor's boyfriend had assumed. Still, all was not lost. They could get on with recruiting right now, it would only take a few days, and they'd be gone. Plus, crucially, they would have the resources of the Tower, which could yield up to 30 pieces of artillery, and that's a resource Mary would surely find impossible to match. And look, Artillery would be critical in any fight. So, Jane's council met, and this time it was Jane that shouted defiance at the world. Now, on the 11th of July, it was Jane that proclaimed her right to the world and called her supporters to her side. They did have something of a problem. William Cecil was asked to draft the document and refused to do so, which was irritating. But everything was fine in the end because John Cheek stepped forward and agreed to do it. Jane's proclamation as rightful Queen of England to her country was confident, robust and uncompromising and, like all good pieces of marketing, had a nice, clear call to action. First of all, let there be no doubt that Jane was Queen by right. By good order of old, ancient laws, but also by our late Sovereign Lord's letters patent signed with his own hand. And now the call to action. The Lord's Lieutenant were required to disturb... Repel and resist the feigned and untrue claim of the Lady Mary, bastard door to our, to our great-uncle Henry Eighth of famous memory. The letters also renewed commissions issued by Edward VI to the Lord's Lieutenant, because when there was time, they would be needed to provide the means of Mary's correction. Meanwhile, though, an accession proclamation was also knocked up, signed by the full council and Jane herself, and sent off to the printer Richard Grafton. Grafton must have rubbed his hands with glee at the commission and the promise of many, many more to come. Roll on, political instability, he might have crowed and worked overtime to get the proclamation printed and out the door. So, before you could say propaganda, royal servants were plastering up bills all over London, trying to convince the unconvincible. Much more would be needed to persuade the citizenry of London, Meanwhile Jane's domestic worked its way through and young though she was Jane demonstrated once more that she would be her own person. So Guilford fixed to follow his mother's advice of the night before and flounce. Flounce out of the tower in protest at not being made king. Jane would have none of it. There is every sign of her Tudor blood in her peremptory command that Guilford would stay exactly where he was and was forbidden to leave. Guilford stayed. There is a story that Guildford nonetheless tried to eat in state in the manner of a king and attend council meetings. Actually, there's no evidence of this other than the Catholic chronicler Wingfield and in all likelihood it's just mudslinging. Guildford seems to have been more biddable than Jane and found it harder to resist family pressures. What does not happen though is any intervention by the Duke to try and force Jane into recognising Guildford as king. Now look, that's interesting, isn't it? You would really have expected that if you were going for the bad, evil Duke of Northumberland theory just out to get his boy on the throne. So, you know, think on't. There was more to be done yet by the council. There was a war to be fought. And military man, though I ain't, even I know that to fight a war, you need an army. A recruitment letter was needed and a plan. The letter was drafted on the 11th of July and sent to Grafton. It repeated Jane's legitimacy, but now... Rather than the gentle instruction to Mary to bow her head and submit, now there was a full frontal smear campaign. Let slip the dogs of war. Mary was being a thorough-going rotter, they said, and was doing all that she could to stir and provoke the common people of the realm to rebellion, but also the means to bring in great forces of papists, Spaniards and other strangers for the aid of her unjust and unnatural pretense to the great peril and danger of the utter subversion of God's holy word and the state of this realm. And now the call to action was to gather together to preserve the true religion and ancient liberty of your natural country against foreign power. It also mentioned a threat from the baser sort to men of worship and good degree and wealth. This is something of a textbook appeal to the fundamental drivers of your Tudor gentry. The families on whose backs the result of this conflict would depend. Foreigners? Yuck. The Pope? Not at home to Mr Pope, my friend. Base assault? Bring me my horse, a shotgun and a pasty. Meanwhile, the council remained paranoid about imperial military intervention. And on that same day, the 11th of July, a delegation arrived at Shiver's house demand that he leave. Shriver managed to confuse the business by linking any possible French aid with an attempt to put Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne. A note for future discussion folks but Mary and her husband the Dauphin would take great delight in advancing Mary Queen of Scots claim to the throne of England, quartering the royal arm of England on the French arms. This gave Shriver's obfuscation some force. And so out of the tower rushed Henry Dudley Emissary to France, and off to the channel he went. He won't actually arrive at Henry II's court until the 19th of July, but the message that he bore reflected Northumberland's view of the world on the 11th. And Northumberland's message to the French was, relax, everything's fine. They won't need or want French military intervention. They've got all this covered. So despite the feverish activity going on, the council felt well on top of everything. Things were cool, just a little bit of local difficulty. After all, Mary was unlikely to be able to raise a substantial army and even if she did, there'd just be a bunch of East Anglian yokels armed with spades, pitchforks and the odd beat. Obviously the humble beat can be a vicious weapon in the right hands but she'd have no artillery and that was the key. No, everything was in hand. Before the recruitment letters could go out though, Jane and her council needed to make a decision. Should this army stay in London or go to East Anglia? That decision seems to have been reasonably straightforward. The quicker Mary was locked away, the better. So, fine. A trip to the exotic east it was then. But who should command? Well, it was quickly agreed that the Marquis of Northampton and the Earl of Huntingdon should go along, but the ultimate commander, that was trickier. There are two basic stories about this one. So, I'm going to play both of them to you. What I need you to imagine then, first of all, is the Tower of London. Ravens. Tudor royal bodyguards standing around with pikes, looking fierce. Then, inside the white tower we fly to a council room. Dark wood, table, men looking old and grave, and maybe 20 men or more sitting around said table. Secretaries. And Jane, maybe a cloth of estate on a canopy above her head. Have you got that as a freeze frame image? OK, now, press start. The council are debating whose name they should add, to the recruitment letter, when Jane at this point leans forward and she calls for attention. Of course, it must be her father, she declares. I have no safer defence than my loving father, she proudly and loyally declares, eyes shining with filial pride. Excellent, declares the council. Henry, Duke of Suffolk, it shall be. Huzzah! Suffolk stands tall and proud. Right, let's take a comfort break. Cup of tea, custard cream, that sort of thing, says somebody. Well, not tea, obviously. Or custard cream, for that matter, but you know what I mean, a break. Now, quickly cut away, change the scene to a small private room somewhere in the tower. Francis, Duchess of Suffolk, and her husband are talking. There is the gentle sound of male whining along the lines of, I don't want to go, Fran. Francis looks no happier. Mary, after all, actually is her friend. And Francis reckons pretty clearly that if everything goes wrong and Henry was back in the tower when the fighting was happening, then there's some chance of him getting a pardon. There's absolutely no chance of the commander of the army that tries to kill Mary getting a pardon if Mary wins. There'll be chicken feed. So, cut away back to the council room a little bit later. Henry is sitting there with the council. He leans forward. He's looking ashen. I'm so sorry, he says. I have been attacked by a terrible illness. Happens all the time. I'm so faint, I can hardly stand. There's nothing more I'd like to do than go with the army, but it cannot be me. With a few pitying and sceptical looks, there is then only one other candidate. I will lead, said the Duke of Northumberland. Huzzah, said the council. So, that's the first reported scenario. Now, let's have the second. So, go back to your freeze frame. Council chamber, blokes, Jane, canopy. Right, press start again. The debate around the council is raging. The council has finally hit on the Duke of Suffolk as their man. Who better to win a kingdom than the Queen's own flesh and blood? Suffolk accepts the commission of the council. All is decided. But then suddenly there's a commotion. Jane's hand is over her mouth in distress. The tears are pouring down her young cheeks. Not my father, she cried. Anybody but my father. He must not leave the tower. He must stay here with me. The council are nonplussed. Then it must be you, Northumberland. There is nobody else with as much military experience as you. And eventually Northumberland spoke. Well, since you think it good, I and mine will go, not doubting of your fidelity to the Queen's Majesty, which I leave in your custody. Either scenario seems plausible, it has to be said, but I'm going to go for the first, which is controversial of me. Jane had already shown some steel. Her dad had already displayed a deal of military incompetence and backsliding in resigning the Wardenship of the North, and Francis was pretty sharp. Either way, the point has been made that Northumberland had the power to make his own choice, and he was fating a Tuffy. To stay would mean he remained at the centre of power, stiffening the resolve of the council. To leave meant he controlled the military. It was probably he that did most to choose that he would leave. After all the council seemed to be rock solid behind Jane. Time would tell if he'd made the right call, but the long and short was that Northumberland was going east with the army. The recruitment letters to the regions went out the following day, the 12th of July, although men had actually been coming into the Tower to join up from the bills posted around London. On the 11th of July, the men of London had been ordered to assemble at Tothill Fields and they'd been offered 10p a day rather than the normal 6p. Outside London, the response is a bit difficult to know. So what's clear is that Jane's announcement in the town squares and villages of England came like a lightning out of a blue cloudless sky. Jane who was that? But the Tudor state was, by the standards of the day, very well organised. And it seems that the vast majority of justices of the peace and lords-lieutenant did what they were told to do. So Jane was announced as Queen. They started to mobilise local resources to join Northumberland on his march eastward, whatever the response of the wider commons was. In London, the response of the ordinary people was, shall we say, unenthusiastic. Outward revolt, though, was pretty much absent. There is only that one vocal voice of Gilbert Potter who had his ears cut off for his pains. But nor was there any great enthusiasm for Jane or her pronouncements. One papal observer claimed that Jane's proclamations were "'Received with remarkable discontent, as hateful to everyone.'" There were very few prepared to shout for Mary— but many Londoners were sullen and silent supporters of her cause, the majority at very best undecided. Outside Durham House, Northumberland's residence, sounded the beat of the drum as Londoners came forward to join Queen Jane's army. By the night of the 13th of July, it looks as though he may have gathered around 1500 men and 30 pieces of artillery. His son Robert Dudley was in East Anglia already with some 300 men. Others would join him on the way from the other regions. Within a few days on the march, Northumberland would probably have mustered 3,000 foot and a 1,000 horse, plus the artillery. Northumberland also had around him the best military leadership in the country. Mary was trapped in the right-hand bottom corner of the kingdom. It was a small but disciplined force that Northumberland had, but it should be more than enough. Still, Northumberland was nervous, nervous of what would happen behind his back when he was gone. And so on the 19th or 13th of July, he gathered together the council for a big send-off supper, to stiffen the sinews and make sure their various aspects were sufficiently tigerish. He felt the need for a rousing speech, reminding them of the loyalty that they owed to Jane, and there was a sting in the tiger's tail. If ye shall violate, hoping thereby of life and promotion... Neither acquit you of the sacred and holy oath of allegiance, made freely by you to this virtuous lady, the Queen's Highness, who by you and our enticement is rather by force placed thereon than by her own seeking and request. It's an interesting line. We all have a responsibility here, he says. Some recognition that this situation was not a usual. Jane was no grasping power seeker. She hadn't asked for this. They owed her. One counsellor replied, if ye mistrust any of us in this matter, your grace is far deceived. For which of us can wipe his hands clean thereof? His job done, Northumberland now left. As he rode out with his army the following morning, that is the 14th of July, Northumberland showed all the outward confidence of the commander, and Londoners gathered to see him pass. After he had watched him go, Schiffer gloomily wrote, We believe that my lady will be back in his hands in four days. But Northumberland, on the other hand, noticed that the people pressed the seers, but not one saith God speed us. Everything now depended on Northumberland.